there is this ambivalent ways of thinking about what is the role of these kinds of institutions the state the ngo and who is the community what do we mean when we say this is the community so in this case i kept wondering as men kept speaking and no woman you know every woman i have this picture was the, the they actually have this they cover their heads with a sari you can't even see their face fully where are the voices of of those individuals this do they comprise the community so i think sometimes even in scholarship we talk about community but we are not very clear who we are including and are we recognizing those constitutive politics at the community level welcome to co-water voice We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. Co-Water is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska-Curie Action. Co-Water examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co-production. I am Pratimi Vidyatni Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. After some inactive months, I return with the fourth season of Co-Water Voice to talk about possible radical alternatives to water service commercialization. The privatization trend with its different forms of implementing policy has definitely worsened existing conflicts over water resources and water territories, a topic that I have covered in the season two of this podcast. In this season, I have conversations to highlight some important concepts for understanding the background conditions of public service privatization or why it was possible in the first place for privatization to happen worldwide. I think only through this understanding we can then imagine the conditions of possibility for the alternatives to emerge. In this episode, it is really great to have Mangala Subramaniam with us. She is a professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. She has been an important figure within diverse academic communities in the US and in India. She is currently a senior vice provost at Faculty Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her research is in the broad areas of social inequality and social movements and she has published a number of outputs around water rights including a book that discusses the history of World Water Forum and the emergence of People's Water Forum. I think her trajectory of scholarship is really valuable to enrich the current streams of anti-privatization literature. Yeah. Uh-huh.
Thank you, Mangala, for being with us. It's really a great pleasure. Let me open this conversation by referring to the book of Vandana Shiva, which you also often cited in your publication. Uh, it was published already in, in 2002. I read Water Wars in Aceh after the Indian tsunami, as I happened to be a humanitarian worker there to help reconstructing villages uh, as an architect. It's very important to say this because I was born in Jakarta. I studied architecture in an urban setting, and I indeed studied this modernist urban imag imaginary. To read the book in a rural setting was really important to feel what Shifa wrote about farmers' struggle for water. Commodification and privatization of water, as it was discussed in this book, is a disaster in the rural setting. But I think in the more recent literature, mainly discussed this crisis or water crisis in urban setting as privatization is all about pipe water in the city. So maybe you see what I have seen as well. I might have simplified this rural-urban dichotomy, and I, I might be wrong as well in concluding this kind of literature shift. But perhaps you have some uh, examination regarding this shift in the critical literature of water sector development. If it's now kind of urban bias. Yes, I think um, just because urban areas get more attention um, and media and people who write have easy access to city, right, or urban areas, and therefore they tend to focus more on that. But I see I would see water scarcity and the notions of governance of water, right? And how the state thinks it is the soul. It, it is soul, it solely controls who owns or who disowns water. I think it's across the rural urban divide. Uh, it's not um it, it's not in any single region, or uh, you know, if you can say, oh, it's only urban or only rural. And and I say this because. In one of the cases that I talked in my book, uh, the 2018 book on um, the contesting of water rights, there is this example that I give of where there was a river that was revived by local village residents in, in Northwestern India, in Rajasthan state. It's a very rural area. They revived this water over being educated about the importance of ensuring there's no overgrazing, there's no over kind of being conscious, right, about, about water needs. When that river was revived, there was fish in the water. The government actually contracted that fish to a contractor, saying that all the fish in that river is the rights of this private contractor who paid the government right on a kind of a tender basis for this control, the ownership of the fish in that water. The residents, the village residents around that river actually sat uh, around, is what I was told when I visited this area and attended uh, one of their sessions, where they said they would not allow this contract to uh, be fulfilled or for this contractor to be able to fish or get the fish from that water because they had revived that river and this local understanding, right? Local understanding of this, this resource belongs to that region and to the people over there. It's not state-owned, which can the state can just kind of give access to. 
right? Or give access to what is in this water or the use of that water in different ways. So I don't know if there's any, uh, I don't see much of a divide um, between urban and rural in terms of uh, the issues that come up in relation to ownership in terms of commodification. That's actually commodification. The state is allowing for a private entity to profit, right? To profit from those fish in that water. So I don't see much difference, but I agree with you. There has definitely been more attention um, to urban kind of access to water because it's more, I feel like it's a more accessible region. Nobody's going to go into these villages in Northwestern Rajasthan to understand commodification or what is happening at a very local level. Now that you have mentioned about locus of community, if we also think about this uh, big movement to re-municipalization of previously privatized water utilities, we, sh we should not be celebrating this yet because commercialization is very possible within the appearance of state-owned companies. Now then, if we continue our conversation about the locus of community, this is uh, also that uh, I am very much informed because of your article, not uh, the book. So this was the, the one that published in 2014 in current sociology about the role of NGOs in helping communities, and in this case, to improve low-cost irrigation technology. So the appearance of being state or being community might still be porous to the commercialization logic. So maybe you could elaborate a bit about this uh, being state or being community and uh, how, how we should remember some basic kind of concepts to, to be able to evaluate this. And, and that's what you picked up a very interesting point because when I first went to do that research um, that I reported in that article, um, I had not thought of the local, what I call constitutive politics. Like communities are not homogeneous. Uh, they vary, uh, you know, people or households vary by gender and how gender relations are structured in the community, by how we think about class. And especially when you're referring to farmers and farmland, you know, who are the large farmers? Who are the small farmers? In the case of India, it's a little bit divided by caste, to some extent, at least, I would say, if not completely, right? So the local constitutive politics of this intersection of these differences based on gender or class or caste play out in how we think about water. And I, I, I referenced the NGO because I attended one of these uh, water parliament sessions uh, back in, I think, 2017 that was um, in, in Hindi, it's called Pani Sansa. It was a very interesting experience, right? Because all of the local people across several villages in that river that they had revived on, on the banks and, and further down were all meeting for this two-day session. This was organized by an NGO. And, and I wouldn't say the NGO is not committed. It was extremely committed from what I spoke to those people about being very instrumental in this revival of this river, getting educating even the younger generation, right? The kids who are going to school about environment, um, environmental destruction, the consequences of that and so on. So they did have a role to play. What was interesting at the water parliament session which I attended is, we all know women collect bulk of the water, particularly in rural areas. They use water the most. They were at this session, but not a single woman spoke through the time of the session. 
So this is kind of an open mic where you, there's a mic and then they have laid out some, uh, you know, um, carpet, like dari is what are called for people to sit and everyone comes and congregates. Food is served, lunch served. The NGO, I think, you know, makes some arrangements for that. But this open mic, what I call, what I'm referring to is you could come up there, a farmer could come up there and start talking about some of the concerns or challenges. One of the examples I think I've used in the article is about a farmer who talked about digging bore wells. And if you dig, the elevation at which you dig bore wells has an impact on the groundwater levels. Large farmers who are more, you know, who are more well-off are, are the ones who have the funds, the resources, right? The money and the cloud to be able to dig bore wells. And, and the smaller farmers are unable to question that, right? So when when people when the smaller farmers or I would say mid-sized uh, landowners began talking, they talked about wanting to have some kind of guidelines on who can dig bore wells and how you can dig or should there be a process. And that's entirely logical. No woman spoke through these sessions. And for me, that was very eye-opening, considering we know as scholars, we've been kind of following this lens of where is the gender lens into thinking about water or talking about water, the right to water, the access to water and so on, right? And I felt the NGO had not done much of that, um, not done much to kind of widen and broaden the, the so-called participation, right? How will we want to define participation? Is participation just attendance? Is participation more in engagement? Are there different perspectives? Are there different kinds of power relations that control who expresses opinions around water rights or water governance, or even these issues of um, trying to dig bore wells because large farmers need more water, right? Because they own more farmland and therefore they're looking for more water. But what's happening as a consequence to the groundwater levels in those areas, right? And I feel like, the NGO has, there is this ambivalent role of this NGO, right? Where on the one hand, they are educating, trying to bring this to the forefront. But on the other hand, there is this whole gap. There's a larger gap in this work around who we are engaging in these conversations. The other part in the role of NGOs, which I don't say much in the article with the number of words constraints that I had, is even when you look at these larger forums, and, you know, I'm considering the next uh, alternative World Water Forum is coming up in, in Indonesia, as you mentioned. You know, I've been tracking some of these forums, partly because who comes, who is able to come? You know, I talk more about that in the book than in the journal article, right? And who speaks for whom? When do we have local people? So even the person who's called the waterman, who done a lot of work in this region that I'm referring to in Northwestern India, you know, with the best of intentions and not questioning at all that they are committed to bringing about change, you still don't hear the actual physical voices of the people in that region or the people who are engaged in these conversations about what should happen. How do we revive? Or what is my commitment to this thing? Or what is my commitment to discussing uh, the digging of bore wells, right? So th there is this ambivalent ways of thinking about what is the role of these kinds of institutions, the state, the NGO, and who is the community? 
what do we mean when we say this is the community? So in this case, I kept wondering as men kept speaking and no woman, you know, every woman I have this picture was, the, the they actually have this, they cover their heads with a sari, you can't even see their face fully. Where are the voices of, of those individuals? Does, do they comprise the community? So I think sometimes even in scholarship, we talk about community, but we are not very clear who we are including. And are we recognizing those constitutive politics at the community level? You have conveyed some dense messages here. So let me uh, separating so one from the other. Uh, so uh, let's delay a bit about this uh, spaces for voicing aspirations. I, I want to go back uh, on this a character of community. Yes, it's not homogeneous and we have layered of subclasses. And then, first of all, um, they are not consolidated, let's say, uh, like, let's say it like that. But then uh, the neoliberal market regulatory mechanisms have been much more developed. We see that even the, the governmental techniques in, in the earlier era of water commodification or commercialization already transformed a lot. Do you think then this terrain of community then become very porous to this market uh, regulatory mechanism logic? So then it's also then between or among communities, then it's also hard to um, maintain collective ownership, for example. And then it's it's so easy to be parceled into family-based ownership or even a kind of individualization of, of form of ownership. I think you, you can elaborate a bit more about this because you have also written about this uh, approach to property. Yes, it's how we think about, you know, the part where you talked about this, the porosity. But I, I also would add to that how you engage these rural communities to think about environmental resources, not as profit, but this notion of profitability, right? This very private profit kind of mentality is seeping into these regions, right? And it is taking this because you have these variations in the community, the large farmers who have more resources, who are looking to profit, more than the small farmers, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm polarizing and I know there are in between, but if you were to take the extremes, the small farmers are looking at survival. The large farmers are looking at profit. And as you see these market forces kind of seeping in, right? Not just in, in nationally or globally, but seeping into these areas which have been more quote-unquote protected from some of these more broader forces are now seeing, hey, I could benefit or I could have a profit. I could profit more by doing this, right? Or, and, and the erosion, what you're talking about, erosion of what is collective, right? But even the fact that the state becomes a conduit, it, it is enabling, right? It is enabling this privatization and corporati corporatization in the name of efficiency, right? How do we understand efficiency and rationality which, which are very strong economic concepts that don't account for these very social differences. It's not even just the differences, right? It is really about privilege and power. So power is at, for profitability, there is power really embedded in all of these processes, whether we talk about 
neoliberalism, commodification, or whether even we talk about the large farmers in a quote-unquote local community or region, right? And so in some sense, I think this is also all tied to how we think about justice, environmental justice. Is it just recognitional justice? Is it distributional justice? Is it procedural justice? How do we think about these forms of justice when we are also thinking exactly about what you said, if I could elaborate on how we think that the seeping in into communities or rural areas, especially these notions of profitability, and therefore who has power, who is going to control this resource, who is going to own it, even if it's not defined and written in paper. I think it's it's really a good angle to coin this uh, profiting versus surviving. Are you then also trying to see this as between production and social reproduction? Because then, well, in, in many more traditional communities, they don't separate this to like yes. industrialized uh, countries or nations, right? But then um, this is also the domain where the voice of women are not there. You know, this kind of care works, care of nature, and yeah, just keeping the, the family across uh, generations, actually. And these are like the domain that we can call social reproduction. Uh, maybe you have some comments on, on this. So yeah, I, I really like what you said, because it's exactly what's happening, right? We are allowing for reinforcing the kind of gender relations that have always remained to be kind of there. You know, on the one hand, we talk about, oh, we want more education. In rural areas, we want girls to be educated, we want women to be educated, we want to raise literacy rates. But I often ask, is there a direct correlation between education and the change in the relations of power and gender as relations of power, right? And the social reproductive work, both reproductive work and social reproductive work that is completely gendered in most regions, and I would say most developing countries and perhaps to some extent in developed countries that is still very entrenched, right? Which is why even in these, but I'm talking about rural areas. And so people may say, but oh, that's happening only in rural areas. How much voice do we hear about some of these, these issues related to water rights or even generally to environmental justice from women, right? Even in urban areas. There are activists who are interested in this. Obviously, Vandana Shiva, one of them, has written so extensively, and um, who I always feel very honored to cite in my work. But if you think about the logic of the reproduction, social reproduction, somehow even some of that that has become so connected to profitability, right? I mean, how we think about the gains of things. And, and that's something I feel we need to think more deeply about as scholars, but also more um, putting it on the table, kind of when we talk about justice, because some of these issues related to water rights, I think are about justice. And you know, what is a right even is, is being so discussed, right? Where some countries have put right to water in constitutions. So uh, we can talk more about that, but I, I didn't want to change the train of thought. Um, from the reproductive work and the social reproduction and, and which is just entirely gendered. If we, we talk about the role of, of the state, 
how much the policy about water resources or water service provision in India have been influenced by feminist movement or uh, environmental movement? First thing, I think um, I would also argue that the state is not monolithic. Um, and particularly, you know, in many countries, we have multi-layered state, right? I mean, the national government and the state and the national court and the Supreme Court, very unlike the U.S., where we don't have Supreme Courts at the state level in India, for instance. And then you have state-level governments, and then you have state-level court, courts, and then you have these local governance institutions. I think I mentioned this a little bit in the article and a little bit more in the book about the local governance institutions as panchayats, which is, when, which is a very traditional form of governance across the lev the levels below the state, you know, either what you call the county or the district, what you call in India, and below the district, right? So I also think I would kind of try to pull apart a little bit about the state and its structure, because not all of the arms of the state work the same way. Uh, you know, in a case in, in southern India, in Kerala, um, the high court of the state ruled in favor of the protesters uh, against this plant, this Coca-Cola plant, where it, they had said there was no regulation, all of this waste that was put out, and the paddy fields were completely destroyed, and the groundwater levels dropped, the quality of water, that uh, drinking water was affected, and the local people protested. The state government thought they wouldn't do anything because the factory this Coca-Cola factory provided jobs, employment, right? The release of employment numbers being so critical to how the state looks at itself. And, you know, that state in Kerala is has the highest literacy rate. It's very educated a population in the state. But the high court actually ruled in favor of the protesters. So I also think when we think of the state, just like communities, these layers of the state with different kinds of power, right? Where the state government could say, no, 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 we are not going to stop Coca-Cola from producing anything because it's providing so many jobs to people. Whereas when the quality of water and the agricultural land, which is like a paddy, you know, it's a rich paddy growing area, uh, rice, it is amazing to see how this was altered uh, by this waste that was being pushed out without any regulation. Was the state responsible to create some regulation? I would perhaps say yes. But as the people protested and went to court, the courts ruled in favor of the protesters asking for the factory to close its production, right? So I, I think sometimes even when we look at state and social movements or state and protests, we need a lot more clarity what we mean by the state. You know, because the state is fractionated, it has multiple moving parts, and each of those moving parts may not be working in tandem with each other at all. You know, they may leverage each other, but yet there is that independence and the dependence. The court, uh, the high court obviously has judges that are appointed by the state, by the government, but yet it choose, chose to do a ruling in opposition to what the state was supporting, right? And I, I wanted to come back to your question because I, as you were talking, I was thinking about the state. But I also think of protests and movements, whether it's for water rights or any kind of thing, who they are targeting 
and how they utilize these different fractions of the state to somewhat get a say, right, in the matter. So I, I think it's this fluidity of this relationship across different arms of what we call the state that we would need to actually um, disentangle. And not all countries have similar structures. Democracies typically have the structure that I'm talking about, like in India, right? Uh, and, and I feel like in one sense, I think social movements can leverage that, that variation and utilize it to get, um, to gain attention or garner attention to the issues they are raising. And on the other hand, I do think sometimes the state can exert enormous amount of power. Uh, and I see this currently in India where any kind of environmental justice issue uh, or climate change issue, uh, it's the, the dissent is being literally curtailed, right? Is being suppressed or um, activists or people who are writing on these issues have a fear of what are the consequences of my raising this. Uh, you know, a couple of years back, or maybe before the pandemic, the Greenpeace was asked to close down its office in India. A Greenpeace activist was not allowed to travel to a conference outside India, right? So th there are these other kinds of these direct confiscations and conflicts between movements and the state and activists. But even in these layers of the state and the arms of the state, who is exerting power under what circumstances? Now let's talk about the state beyond the national state. And now we, we will complicate even the yeah. terrain, right? Like there are many international forums. I mean, let's say it's organization, governing bodies for something good or worse. Right? I mean, we talk about this uh, World Water Forum is one example. And then, of course, this alternative of the People's Water Forum. What was uh, the governing terrain of the World Water Forum? It's this kind of, I know the, the answer is to like lubricate the profiting intention, but yeah, try to be naive a bit. Uh, don't they do any good <laughs> also? Or, I mean, you know, it's like the UN. I mean, it's the same. There's no, or the European Union, there's no uh, kind of single a character we can put or label on it. Yes. It's not a unified entity, right? And I, I, I've spent a lot of time looking at all of the documents uh, before 2017, both of the World uh, Water Council, which we started organizing the World Water Forum, and this alternative World Water Forum or People's Water Forum, as it's called. And, and I would say that the fact that there are, I know I talk in the book about the leverage with funds, resources, profiteering, uh, looking at this rationale, using the maximizing benefit rationale for what the World Water Forum wants to accomplish, right? The very fact that it is funded by private corporations, uh, these large uh, water private agencies, itself speaks to something, right? But the fact that they have been able to get national governments of countries represented here and to speak, and even though they say they want an alternative perspective, if you look at the documents and what has been put out, all of it is geared towards state control um, of resources, water resources, 
it's about efficiency it's about clean water which only private agencies can provide because they harness that water and bottle it and many of us who uh, who buy this bottled water in the interest of health just because we can get access to clean water in many areas of the world right and and the i see the people's water forum or the alternative world water forum Whose, whose documents also I analyze was very difficult to get a lot of documentation. And I even state a reason for that. Why is it there's no documents available? Do they really have the resources to do those things? Put out these glossy reports or have people mm -hmm. who have time who are primarily um, protesting, um, who are engaged in activism, to find the time and effort to actually record or write about what they believe in or what they are doing. And this is this creates a huge disconnect, right? And I didn't want to kind of just write saying there are no documents available. I wanted to have to make sure that I could speculate what are the reasons that we don't have, have so many documents or so many glossy reports, but what could be happening over here? And the second reason I say also for why we don't have a lot of documentation, except perhaps for the first two alternative world water forums, is the fact that not everyone is able to travel, those who are activists, even NGO, uh, no matter their role being somewhat sometimes conflicting, they do, many NGOs are very strongly committed, both international and local NGOs, to addressing environmental justice uh, issues, water rights, and so on. They are not, they don't have the resources to travel, be present in these forums. So I also like the idea that the Alternative World Water Forum went into kind of these regional uh, ways of thinking. So if we hold this in East Asia, we're probably going to get a lot of people from East Asia. If we hold this in North Africa, we're probably going to get a lot of people from North Africa. Very unlike the World Water Forum, right, where people have all kinds of resources and money and are are sent as delegates by their governments and uh, private agencies um, that are profiting or can kind of utilize this. The other thing I would say of the Alternative World Water Forum is um, there isn't a lot of voice in the international arena, uh, right? Uh, about when I started writing the chapters for my book on, on both the World Water Forum and the Alternative World Water Forum, there was very little out there. There was more about these translocal and trans transnational kinds of networks uh, that are created, which are extremely important, I wouldn't say no, because especially because many of uh, the activists who are involved in the movements, even local movements, which are very much on the philosophy of the Alternative World Water Forum, they kind of rely on these transnational and translocal networks. But I really think that there is not uh, the kind of high profile, right, that the World Water Council is able to put out. And for people to engage in those discussions, which are so crucial to the role of the Alternative World, World Water Forum, pretty much ownership, governance, um, quote-unquote managing that, and this understanding, the lack of understanding, I would say, of the indigenous knowledge in those processes indigenous local cultural knowledge, right? Even in the 2014 article of mine where I talk about these small check dams that are being constructed, but constructed by the local people on the Shramdan kind of concept of Gandhi's, 
even in those instances, they know how this will work. I have seen some of these. These are not some huge structures or dams, but yet they enable those local people access to that water, even if not for drinking for other household purposes, right? Where do we start to think about the alternative world water forums philosophy on water governance, water use, managing of water, and determining the rights to that water? Where do we move this from state and private entities, whatever layer level of the state we are talking about, to what we call the people, right? Knowing fully well, and as I acknowledged in the beginning, communities are constitutive of politics, and we know that there are hierarchies. But yet, how do we let those people, like in the water parliament, sort out those issues amongst themselves to determine some of this? I, 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 there may be some writings. I, I wouldn't deny. I, have, I wouldn't admit that I have looked at every document when I wrote the book. I looked at documents that I had access to. But I would expect and hope that in the coming years, the Alternative World Forum will start articulating this philosophy much, much more clearly so that movements and activists are able to kind of take and run with it. Thank you for your message. I think as a scholar, I would I would say I would like to devote my energy for working with some activists in this People's Water Forum. But I also see scholars in Indonesia, I would say they are quite critical, but maybe not so progressive and has this kind of still of this naive perspective that, uh, yeah, we can improve improve uh, the practice and the governance through the World Water Forum. Um, maybe you have some say about it. Is it, is it, is it really still useful to talk to in this forum or it's better than, you know, let's just then uh, try to consolidate the voice on the other forum? I think it's both. Um, I think one, the consolidation of voices and the exercising a clear philosophy from the Alternative World Water Forum will allow for a more, I wouldn't say completely, but a, a greater degree of evenness to have a conversation with the World Water Forum and its entities, right? The, the Right now, the inconsistency at the levels of power and articulation of both of these forums are very high. I think the gap is pretty big. Where do we begin to even bring this a little, this what is the philosophy that Alternative World Water Forum believes in? And then to be able to come to the table with the World Water Forum and its entities about what best can be done, right? What can be done, and I wouldn't say everything is possible, what can be done in partnership? But where should the voice of the Alternative World Water Forum be? It cannot be that you arrive at, we can do one, two, three, and, and partner on this, and then it becomes a World Water Forum kind of initiative. It has to have the Alternative World Water Forum's voice in as those three things move or four things. But I think the first step, even though I have seen the Alternative World Water Forum, what it's articulating, a greater expression and dissemination of what its philosophy is, maybe a first step to even thinking 
where can it come up to be able to have this dialogue? I thank you very much. It's, it's really, really wonderful talk you have given. And of course, we need to continue the conversation. What is public? What is public domain? Of course, it's not. it cannot be reduced into the state domain. And I'm sure we will have more time for discussing this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Prithvi. I'm just excited. You know, I get really excited talking about these issues, having seen them at the ground level. Uh, and wanting to see more progress in these conversations, you know, whether it's water rights or any other environmental issue, the need for thinking about justice has multi-dimensional, and it's not one, I distributed the water to you, and that's, you have water now, and that's okay. What about the procedures of distribution? What about the recognition of, of differences and variations? So, always excited uh, to talk about this, and and water is not a lone uh, kind of an issue, right? I mean, it's connected to so many other things, to land, land ownership, the nexus between all of these uh, different aspects even of the environment, forest, forest management, you know, how do, how do we begin to think about people's voices um, in these efforts? I really appreciate uh, you asking me. I'm honored uh, to speak on this podcast and look forward to hearing more about the 2024 Alternative World Water Forum.